The thing about also, you know, document photography, it's not objective. You know, people often say, you know, it's object- It's not objective. It can't be because it's something that, you know, you or I create. Therefore, it's very personal. You know, it's my view of what I'm seeing and want to share. So it's not really objective. Uh, each person will come in a different way. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are going deep into storytelling. We are going into a really intriguing new project and a body of work that I find personally compelling and really necessary, I think, for any of us that approach uh, telling a story with an image. In other words, we're talking with Jim Grover. Jim is over in South London. He has been everywhere. He's been in the Times, the Sunday Times, the Observer, the Guardian, the Guardian Magazine, the Telegraph, the British Journal of Photography, Black and White Photography, the Leica Forum, and 600 other places. Exhibitions all over the place and an approach to storytelling that I find Really, really fascinating. Jim, welcome to the podcast. How's life over in London this evening? It's great over here. We've just had a thunderstorm pass over. It's been a bit dramatic, but no, it's a lovely early evening. Uh, I love the month of May. The flowers, the greenery is wonderful. <laughs> uh, but we have right now got a torrential rainstorm here in Clapham, but that's that's part of the course in May. You have beautiful days and days that are not quite so beautiful. But oh, I, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm, a, I'm a bad weather fan, so I'm, I'm a little jealous that over here in, in the States, we've got a per- perfectly pleasant and ordinary May afternoon going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, you call yourself a social documentary photographer. Um, you teach documentary photography for the Leica Academy. T- tell, first of all, in, in your own words, tell me what being a documentary photographer means for you. Um, so I guess at its at its heart is uh, storytelling. I want to tell stories about everyday life, unsung heroes. I want to tell stories about traditions and cultures that people may not be familiar with. And I've I've made a, a choice to try and focus my my documentary photography, you know, in in the place where I live, South London. Uh, and I've I've proven to myself that. If you look hard enough and are genuinely interested in people and humanity and want to document that, there is huge you know, opportunity on everyone's doorstep. And I've been doing this now since, what, 2016, and I just keep finding wonderful stories to tell. And so that's what I do. Well, t- tell me what, what defines a story for you, because you've got some really, really uh, remarkable work about cafes, um, you know, about <laughs> coffee shops, yeah. about, you know, all sorts of, and I, you know, they, they are so familiar to all of us that they almost become invisible, yeah. you, know, you know, you know, like doing a story of your closet, you know, yeah. well, what am I going to say in there? Yeah. How do you find a story in something so familiar? So, I, so one thing I would s- start by saying about documentary photographers is it's not just a question of assembling a series of images uh, that are visually, you know, intriguing, engaging, arresting for the viewer. It's also about what you want to say 
You know, when I teach um, document photography, I challenge, you know, my sort of uh, my participants, you know, kind of what do you want to say? You know, what are you saying to the viewer? Because you need to have a point of view, you need to have a voice, and your challenge is to use a series of images and maybe some text with it, with the images, to say something, say something that you feel it's important to say. So, so I, so I, I am always challenging myself with that question: What am I trying to say? And my very first story was: I spent twelve months documenting the life of our vicar, our Church of England vicar, uh, in my my parish. And when I started out, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say. But as I immersed myself and got to know this amazing, inspiring man, I realized that, you know, this is all about selfless service, you know, selfless okay. service in the community. And so, the, so if you like, the visuals, you know, were used to, to, to communicate that, that here is someone who you may be familiar with in the Sunday service, you know, giving the giving the sermon, but actually it's a 24-7 job. And, you know, at all times you are in service of your parish uh, to give spiritual strength, to share your faith uh, with others. Uh, and so, so documentary photography is not just, you know, assembling a series of images that the viewer happens to like for whatever reason, uh, but it's also about saying something. You need to use your voice to say something. And so what, what I've found is that, you know, so, so you take the cafe, you mentioned the cafe story. So mm-hmm. in, in Clapham, there's a little local traditional, we'd, we'd call it a builder's cafe, you know, a cafe used by builders in the morning to get big hearty breakfast before they start their, <laughs> their work. And they're typically fry ups, you know, bacon, eggs, yep. black yep. pudding, fried bread. They're fantastic um, and very traditional. Uh, not very healthy, by the way, but delicious. Uh, and, you know, when I just discovered that this cafe was celebrating its 21st birthday, I thought that's remarkable, you know, to basically have a family traditional calf, you know, run by the same husband and wife team for 21 years. That's extraordinary. You know, that by itself was something I wanted to say. But then I discovered actually it was a community. You know, the the, the people yep. who go in are regulars. They're in there, you know, kind of every day, typically the same time. And for them, therefore, it's a community. Uh, and so I also wanted to share this notion that, you know, it's not just, you know, at one level, it's a cafe that is that is giving sustenance to people who want to buy lunch or breakfast or whatever. But also for those who want it, typically older people, it's offering community. You can go in there, you'll meet the same people, have a chat, uh, and you'll feel safe and at ease before you head out into the big wide world again for another 24 hours before you come back again. So I wanted to kind of say, this is a community. It's not just a cafe, it's a community. So I'm trying to always well, find Jim, something to say Jim, about my stories. Jim, and there, there's a lot I want to unpack in there. And, and first of all, I should point out that on, on your website, and everybody, it's jimgroverphotography.com, spelled exactly the way you would imagine. You've actually got two stories about the cafe. You, you've got life in the cafe yeah. as one gallery, yeah. and then you've got the regulars as, as a completely different yeah. gallery. So you discovered two things in there. But I, I want to step back one second. You talk about having something to say. I know it's not a, it's a, I know it's not an irrevocable decision, but how do you decide whether you're telling their story or you're telling your own story about them? Okay, so it has to be the latter because for me, it has to be the latter. It has to be because you are, the, if you like, you are the documentary photographer. 
You know, you've got to decide what you want to say about the subject matter that you are exploring. That subject matter might be an individual, you know, like my parish priest uh, or my current project, Maurice Dorfman. It might be about a place, a cafe. It might be about a bench, you know, on the common. But you've got to decide what you want to say you know, using imagery, because, you know, we're visual, you know, we're visual communicators here. You've got to decide what you want to say about whatever you've chosen to document. Okay. And, and by the way, I, you know, full disclosure here, I'm a little bit angry with you about the bench project because I got one I just started and you beat me to it. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's a great idea. And I, was, I was loving going through, through those images. Yeah. I want to go back to your priest for a second. Yeah. You talk about the kind of patience to discover what you want to say. How photographically did the idea of service come to you? Actually, this is actually a really interesting story, this one, because when I, this is my first ever story, my first piece of documentary photography, because I've been challenged by someone. I, I'm like many photographers. I'd always sort of taken my camera out and snapped things on the street and some landscapes and some people, whatever it might be. But there was never, you know, more than just a set of individual images. And so the challenge was, uh, Jim, find yourself a subject that you can really immerse yourself in, you know, get under the skin of it you know, get to know the characters, what's going on, what's the story. And when I, so when I started this story, I had no idea. I was literally, this is my first ever piece of documentary work. And I had no idea what I was going to discover. What, what, what led me to explore this subject was that I thought to myself, okay, everyone knows what a parish priest does on Sundays and, you know, weddings and funerals and baptisms, but what do they do for the rest of the week? You know, so that was my my inquiry for like my curiosity was, you know, I don't know what on earth a parish priest in the Church of England in a South London parish does, you know, Monday to Saturday. I haven't got a clue. And so so if you like, my interest was first of all to explore, okay, so what exactly does, you know, Kit, his name is Kit, my my priest, what does he do? And by discovering what he did, that that's when I realized you know, what he really did, which was to kind of, you know, take his faith into the community for those who wanted, you know, spiritual leadership and the strength he could bring to bear. He was there willing to give it. And, you know, his mindset was, you know, I am here, you know, to serve God in my community. I had a very interesting early conversation with him. My, my background is business. I was a corporate, you know, uh, guy running around the world for multinational. And of course, you know, corporates have got, you know, quite rigorous appraisal systems so they can kind of tell each individual, you know, how are you doing? You know, you know, what's your development plan? All that good stuff. And early on, I asked Kit, so Kit, you know, kind of, you know, who, who appraises you? You know, you know what, what's, what's the appraisal process in the Church of England? Thinking there'd be some sort of forms and, and templates. And, uh, you know, that didn't go very far, that conversation, because there isn't anything. So I said, you know, Kit, so, you know, who are you accountable to? You know, because in, in a corporate environment, you're, you're typically accountable to your boss, whoever he or she is. And that's a kind of, there's a clear sort of structure in place and everyone understands how the organization structures. And as Kit looked at me and said, Jim, I'm, I'm accountable to God. I'm accountable to God and I'm accountable to myself to serve God as best I can in this community and give the community everything I possibly can that I'm able to, you know? And so, and so that sort of, you know, really profound, you know, kind of conversation, incredible sort of 
conversation. And, you know, so that, so that then led to me, you know, kind of partnering with him, going on home visits into care homes. You know, so the more time I spent with him, you know, the more I saw what he did with his time. And that's when it sort of all clicked into place. This is all about selfless service. How, how did you negotiate the issues of privacy? Um, it's a great question. Um, it, it's actually, people always ask this question, particularly those on my sort of workshops, you know, how do you get all these permissions and everything? And the first thing I say to them, okay, so the first thing to understand is a documentary photography. The most precious thing you need to get is access. You've got to earn, you know, access so that people are willing to have you be in their midst you know, and take photographs because ultimately that's what you're going to need to do. And, you know, that takes time, you know, that takes time to get because you've got to build up trust and trusted relationships. I, I don't find that to be a problem, actually. It's very rare I'll find someone saying, look, I don't want to be part of your project, Jim, because they tend to like the project I'm kind of embarked upon. I'll I'll show them some of the images I'm creating so they can see the sort of work I'm creating and, you know, what sort of images I'm trying to, um, you know, kind of create. Uh, but in something like when you're doing a project with, some, with someone like Kit and you're kind of on his shoulder sort of wandering around with him in the parish, you know, basically people immediately accept you because they know that, 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 you know, the fact that Kit has, you know, given you permission to be with him, that's all they need to know. You know, that they just assume this is all fine because Kit's got this guy working with him. That's great. As far as I'm happy, you know, I'm happy because I'm happy with Kit. Therefore, I'm happy with Jim. Um, obviously, it requires different approaches and different situations. In the cafe, for example, I just spent a lot of time there, you know, chatting to the locals. Because uh, I'm, you have to be genuinely interested in people. And I really am. You have to be interested in people, their stories, you know, and you know, genuinely be engaged by those stories. And so in the cafe, I just spent time there, chatted with the regulars, you know, eventually I got my camera out. And actually what was funny about that story is, you, as you say, the, the way the cafe split, there are sort of two walls, one on the left, one on the right as you go in. And the left-hand wall, as you say, has got kind of everyday cafe life, kind of classic reportage, you know, documentary photography, you know, kind of crazy cafe life. And on the right are all these portraits of the regulars because I, I, who make up the community. And it says a few things about, you know, how long have you been coming for the cafe for and what were you doing before you, you know, what's your job or whatever. And we had people saying, I really want to be in this, in this, uh, on this wall. We had people after the walls filled up, people sort of chasing the, uh, the owner of the cafe saying, please, can you get Jim to come and do my photograph? I want to be on the wall. Um, so actually, so, so I, I find that because I'm typically celebrating life, I'm typically celebrating life or the lives of individuals, celebrating communities. You know, that's a very uplifting kind of, you know, heartwarming thing to be doing, celebrating life. And so people tend to be, certainly for me, very willing to be part of the stories that I want to tell because without their, you know, without their consent, if you like, it wouldn't happen. But I, I don't, for example, get bogged down in getting consent forms and model release forms because that kills the, you know, it just right. kills right. the mood and the moment. You know, what I'll tend to do is when I get close to finalizing an exhibition or a book, I'll then go back and just get permission for people. Are you happy to be in this? So rarely do I get someone saying, no, I don't want to be in it. Thanks. I think everyone's now so familiar with mobile phones people are used to having images you know taken by them of them you know with them and by and large people you know just love being part of what i'm doing which makes my life much easier jim what do you do when you get the necessary photograph that's not especially flattering 
So that's a that's a really good question. <laughs> I, I, I will tend. Um, okay, I'll tend probably not to use it. Uh, okay. You know, I, I I don't want to portray people in ways they wouldn't want to be portrayed. You know, um, you know, someone might say to me, Jim, well, I hate how I look. I say, no, look, you're beautiful. You look absolutely beautiful. Trust me. You know, so, so, you know, so I, I, I will sometimes end up persuading someone who doesn't like the way they look in a certain photo. I'm saying, no, actually, you look absolutely lovely. Trust me. Trust me on this. You look wonderful. And you'll look lovely in this total set of images as one of them. Uh, but if, you know, if someone, for example, it's very hard to photograph someone eating food and making them look good. So I tend to not photograph people <laughs> eating food because I know that it never makes for good photographs. Similarly, it's never worth trying to photograph someone who really doesn't want to be photographed. It never makes for a good image. So, you know, so if, but, so if I quickly suss out, if I know 25 people in a room that I'm in and I'm photographing, I don't know, a Domino's community, uh, which I've done a few times, and I know there's one person who really doesn't like being photographed. You know, I, I won't. I won't spend time trying to persuade him or her because it's not worth it. You know, they they've decided they don't want to be photographed, and they tend to make for not terribly interesting images. I suppose you could say I'm quite a kind photographer. I want people to look good. Doesn't mean I'm going to you know sort of uh, stage them. I I, I want to catch candid moments, uh, and I want them to be you know looking how they always look. You know, authentic, real life. But if I if there's a really unflattering photograph, I, you know, I almost certainly won't use it because I don't want to kind of I don't want to you know be hurtful to someone. It's just not my my persona. But to go back to the story with your priest or yeah. something, um, you know, a little bit more current, like Windrush or, yeah. or the cafe yeah. or the bench. Yeah. What you know, if you get somebody in a moment of anguish, let's say, or or, or a moment of real. I mean, I'm not talking unflattering, like yeah. they don't yeah. look good. Yeah. Um, but emotional vulnerability. Are you going to step toward or away oh, okay. or negotiate so that's a great that question. one? That's a great question. Uh, I, I've done both. I've done both. So here's an example. On, on the bench story, so for those who don't know the bench story, basically um, every day during August, um, I decided I was going to photograph someone who just sat down on a particular bench by a pond in Clapham. I wouldn't know him or her. I'd ask them a couple of quick questions. How has COVID affected you? And how long have you been coming to this 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 bench, if you like? And then I take up a, took a couple of uh, portraits, and then once I'd got that portrait for the day, that was it. I'd wait, come back the next day, and do it again. Um, so I, I was kind of just—it was the sort of randomness of seeing who turned up at the bench, photograph them. That was it for the day, and then I'd go home and come back the next day. The very last—and th- what was interesting about this this story, of course, is when you ask about how COVID affected you, you get the full array of responses from people saying, "Actually, it's been quite nice. I've been working from home, and I've been seeing my young family grow up around me." Or I don't know, I work for a, a food courier company. I've been busy as anything, made lots of money. Actually, COVID's been quite good to me. And then at the other extreme, on the very last day, very last day. Little old lady sat down, beautiful lady, wearing a lovely, beautiful coat, and lady called Yvonne. And I started chatting with her. And she said, when I asked her, so how's COVID affected you? She's, and I always record on a mobile phone. So to, rather than take notes, I just put the mobile phone down and just let people, I say, just ignore this, just talk. And uh, I put the phone down and say, just you know, how's COVID affect you? And the story goes that, you know, she says, well, actually, it's kind of changed my life. And she gets very emotional. And she tells me how her husband was admitted to hospital 
without COVID, caught COVID in hospital and died in hospital. And it was a time when, you know, relatives were not able to visit their loved ones as they slipped away because of the fear of the infection. So she couldn't be with him. And they had to, it was a long time before they could even bury him. And this was obviously, you know, hugely emotional in the forehead. Unbelievable. I mean, I was just almost crying with her. It was so moving. You know, for that, I, I, need to, I need to capture that. That's a really important story. And very sensitively, you know, photograph her. And she was, you know, very happy to do that, which is very kind of her. So that, in that case, you know, I kind of walked towards, if you like, the emotion, because I knew it was, really, it was a really important story to tell. Really important story to tell. Um, and by the way, I, I, sh- I should interrupt you there to tell everybody you need to go look at this image because the woman is sitting on a bench, but the bench is a memorial bench. Exactly. So there is that uh, emotion going on as well. Exactly. Um, there's there's a small bouquet of flowers. Yeah. And there's a really interesting bit in your web design. Um, when you mouse over the picture, that story appears. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, yeah. So yeah. Th- there, there's a really interesting interplay between the image and then the text going with it. Yeah. So anyway, go on. Anyways, no, because no, actually we'll come back to that. I think that actually very often it's the combination of the text, the narrative and the imagery that, that sort of one plus one equals five. Um, there, but here, here's another example. Right? So, so with the project with my priest, it's Christmas Day and uh, one of the regulars before the Christmas Day service starts to have a conversation with Kit and she burst into tears. And uh, the photographer in me said, this is an amazing moment. You know, she's collapsing in tears, you know, with Kit. And of course, photographer saying, this is a really amazing moment. I need to capture this. But I actually couldn't. I couldn't. I thought this is, this is just inappropriate. This is an incredibly, you know, intense moment. I, it would be intrusive of me to step in because I always use very short lenses, 35 mil, uh, 28 mil or whatever, and it would just be inappropriate. So, so I think, so I judge it, you know, moment by moment. I'll give you one other example. I've done a lot of work with the Caribbean community here in London uh, and they've kind of, you know, welcomed me into their lives, which has been incredibly kind of them. And I've been asked to photograph various of their funerals for them and also for my documentary work. And they are very unique and distinctive Caribbean uh, funerals. And they typically have an open casket, open coffin in the church service. People can come up and, you know, pay their respects. And the first time I photographed one of these, I just didn't think it was appropriate to photograph this beautiful woman lying in the casket, even though other people come out with mobile phones because they regard it as just completely normal. I, I, I just couldn't. It was just, for me, it was sort of culturally too difficult. But, but I realized actually that this is such an important part of the, of the whole funeral and grieving process that actually by the time I'd photographed the next one with an open casket, I was much more, you know, I just knew I had to photograph the open casket uh, to do it sensitively and beautifully, but I had to do that. You learn what you're willing to do and how far you're willing to to push yourself into difficult moments. Because, of course, the difficult moments, you know, make for incredibly evocative, emotive stories. That, you know, that, you know, I, it, I, I frequently end up, I don't know why, when I exhibit in galleries, uh, my work, very often we have people in tears because my imagery 
has got the potential for some people to really kind of cause you know an emotional you know connection and i don't go in there wanting people to cry that's not my ambition at all i want people just to kind of be stimulated provoked engaged intrigued and hear my voice if you like but um uh, on this uh, on this story about kit my parish priest uh, it's the last day of the exhibition and sunday afternoon and i suddenly as a woman is in front of one of the pictures and she's crying and so I go up and say, you know, you're okay. And she said, no, look, I just want you to know that my husband has no idea what I do as a priest. Because she was a priest too. She was a, a priest. She said, my husband has no idea what I do. What you've created here brings to life what I do. And I'm so grateful for you doing it. And now I can show my husband what I do and he'll understand. And for her, that was a sort of a breakdown moment. She was just so move to see her life you know her role revealed you know because obviously she's a she's also a church of england priest and she's a uh, a woman so she's had some other challenges because it's quite difficult being a woman priest initially this country and it moved her to tears and actually the current exhibition i've got about this man maurice storff will come to in a second i'm sure i have several people have been in tears on this one because they they knew him and the exhibition has revealed huge, you know, parts of his life they knew nothing about, and they wish they'd spent more time with him. They come away thinking, I wish I'd spent more time with him, wish I'd known that. And because in the exhibition I'm also playing a sort of 30-minute reel, which includes some audio conversations I had with him, you can hear his voice. So if, if you knew the man, you suddenly find yourself viewing images of his life that you didn't know he led and then you hear him talking in the background and you just kind of just for some people just absolutely grabs you know grabs their emotions and uh, I, I would love to hear that because in in the book you have transcripts yeah, of, yeah, of exactly, stuff in, yeah. in his own voice yeah um I, I would love to hear the his own voice as well and and we're certainly going to get to that book in just a minute but there's one other question from your website that I found intriguing, you make a distinction between projects, yeah. you know, COVID tales from Tom yeah. Spence, here yeah. I am, yeah. things not seen, yeah. and then something called short stories. Yeah. Going back to this notion of narrative, of documentary yeah. work being yeah. telling a story, yeah. what's the difference for you between a project and a short story? Okay, so so that's really more, yes, okay, so a project, so my, my, my work uh, when I immerse myself in a new story, you know, typically they will be long-term projects, you know, kind of Maurice Storff, that's, that, that's been 18 months of my life. Kit, I wanted to spend a whole year, you know, documenting, if you like, a year in the life of a parish priest. You know, even the COVID tales from Tom's Bench, that was a whole month. You know, so so they tend to be, you know, longer, you know, you know, long immersions in a subject matter, usually months. Whereas I might just go out there, you know, spend a few hours shooting, I don't know, Westminster Bridge or, you know, kind of shadows. And that to me is just a you know, just a little short story. Um, a few days in Moscow, uh, on the streets in Moscow, you know, a football match. I mean, that, that, to me that they they, they they aren't really they are they're, they're they're just short little stories because i'm not saying anything really i'm just i'm just trying to assemble a bunch of images that i think you know a viewer might enjoy that together work as a group uh and that's oh, okay. different from a project when i'm immersing myself in for something for a long time and i really i really want to get to know the subject matter whatever that might be and i want to also decide 
having immersed myself in it, what do I want to say? What's my voice? Um, because the thing about also, you know, documentary photography, it's not objective. You know, people often say, you know, it's object- It's not objective. It can't be because it's something that, you know, you or I create. Therefore, it's very personal. You know, it's my view of what I'm seeing and want to share. So it's not really objective. Uh, each person will come in a different way. It's a, it's a personal thing. I always say to people that, you know, you, you're probably going to be helped by working with a curator or someone to help you edit your work because most documentary photographers are terrible at editing their own work. They just can't, <laughs> you know, sift out, you know, the gems from the stuff they're emotionally connected with, but which actually aren't terribly interesting images. But ultimately, I say to, you know, people, ultimately, it's your work. So if you end up disagreeing with your creator, which can be a really healthy piece of creative tension, ultimately, you make the call because it's your work, it's your voice. And curators know that, they recognize that. They'll say, Jim, I'd recommend this. And I might say, yeah, I agree with you. Or I might say, you know what, I, I don't agree with that. I think this is, a, this is the more important image and here's why. And we may have a big debate for half an hour, but ultimately, you know, the curator knows that it's ultimately my work and I get the call. And, that's, that's, and I'll, I'll, I'll live or die by that. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You know, curators for uh, photographers, just like editors for writers, are uh, absolutely necessary for that little bit of perspective yep. and de- you know depth of knowledge and history and stuff. Jim, you have created a, a book, a, an exhibition that is profound and remarkable, and frankly, huge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think you know, if you were to say the life of Maurice Dorfman was a photo book. You've done a great disservice. You've written a biography. Um, you 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 have written a full blown biography, including all sorts of images, both yeah. that you took and then images of, of documents yeah. and stuff yeah. that seem to just you know appear. I mean, not I don't mean the work, but I mean the, the subject. Yeah. So tell everybody first of all, just give, give us the rundown. What is this this project? Where, where did it start? Okay, so this is a. <laughs> Uh, it is huge. This is huge, and it's quite some story. So um, here's how this story started. And uh, very often, I find one story I work on leads to another, you know, down the road. So back in 2016, I did a story all about the high street on in Clapham, my local high street, and it was called "48 Hours on Clapham High Street" because I wanted to, if you like, live you know, round the clock, what's this high street like, you know, at three in the morning and at 10 in the morning, middle of the night, middle of the day, I wanted to kind of bring to life this extraordinary high street because actually it's alive all through the night because it's got a very full on bar, you know, kind of uh, restaurant scene. Um, And anyway, as part of that, I went into this shop for the very first time in my life called Jeanette Fashions uh, that had a rather kind of faded look to it from the outside. It's a haberdashery shop. Went into it for the very first time. 
pushed the door open. It triggered a sort of, you know, homemade shop bell to tinkle above me. Uh, <laughs> I was confronted by this big, empty kind of cavernous, you know, shop that was sort of clearly had it. It was past its best years, if you like. It was starting to look a bit faded. There wasn't a huge amount of stock. Um, and right at the far end was this 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 man standing behind his cutting table, which is what haberdashers have, big cutting table to cut fabrics, um, called Maurice Dorfman. And I'd never met him before. I'd never been to his shop before. I told him I was doing this story about the high street. I'm just talking to people about, you know, life on the high street. And anyway, what quickly transpired in that first conversation was that, you know, he had been trading from this high street shop for 60, 60 years. He's the, it was the longest you know, kind of traditional retailer on the high street, which I thought, wow, 60 years, you must have seen a few changes in your life over six decades. You know, that was sort of older than me. And also, I saw someone who was living by himself, alone. He was at that point in his mid 80s. And every day he was still opening the shop all by himself. And so every time I was down the far end of the high street, it's at the, it's at the far end. There are two ends of the high street. There's the kind of the, the sort of the more affluent end with a big supermarket and the post office and a bank. Uh, and then there's the sort of less affluent end further down. And his shop is at the sort of less affluent end. But anyway, every time I was in that end of the high street, I just drop in, say hello, how are things, Maurice? He always had music playing. We just chat. So I just sort of to keep in company. It's just purely just I just enjoyed dropping by, having a chat, nothing more than that. And then he got very ill just after Christmas 2019 and got admitted to hospital. And four of us who'd kind of, you know, were similarly kind of, you know, had befriended him. He had no family. He was completely without any family direct family. We took it in turns to kind of, you know, look after in hospitals. He's always, there was always someone there to keep an eye on him. And then uh, he died. He died in February, just before COVID struck this country. And so I thought it was important to communicate to the locals in the high street that Maurice had had passed away. So I've put in the window some big portraits and images I'd created back in 2016 as part of this other project because I'd photographed him. And, you know, signs saying, you know, sadly, Maurice is now no more. Six decades of high street trading comes to an end. And it, the response was extraordinary. So many people sort of stopped on the pavement, you know, looked at all these images, and they'd start to talk to each other. They'd talk, they'd talk to strangers because so many of them, once you've been on the high street for six decades, you know, so many people had sort of been in the shop and had got to know them. So people were sharing their experiences. And, you know, Clapham wasn't then a very wealthy part of London. Uh, and so you probably, if you were a woman of a certain age, you probably made your own clothes and made your clothes for your children. So you bought the patterns and the fabrics for Maurice. So they all knew, you know, Maurice through that experience of dressmaking and knitting and, you know, making crochet. Um, so I thought, wow, this is amazing. There's something going on here, um, you know, People, you know, have this huge affection for this man, and now he's passed. I need to do something more than just have a few pictures in his window. So the idea of a tribute exhibition came to mind, that I'd, I'd try and find out more about his life, and I'd tell a bigger story about his total life, not knowing what that really was. Um, anyway, so I raised some money through Kickstarter, and, and I thought it would be a short, you know, three- to six-month project, uh, and I'd have a small exhibition in his shop, be a good place, I thought, to exhibit it. And then blow me down, you know, the more I researched his life, 
the more people I talked to, I, I ended up interviewing almost 70 people, seven zero people who, you know, want wow. to share their stories about him. The more I discovered about him, the more this remarkable life, you know, emerged. He had, he had an extraordinary life. Um, and so it became an 18 month project. I decided I had to write a book with it because, you know, obviously an exhibition is one thing, but you don't want to overwhelm people with text in an exhibition. So I decided to write a book with it. And then it's being exhibited right now. Actually, got a second extra month. It's gone really well here in Clapham. And it, the, it's, it's taken over the entire, there's a big library here in Clapham, modern building, and they've given me the entire space and it kind of weaves its way through the whole building because it's enormous. It's, the exhibition is huge. So that's what Man, I, I, I wish I could get over there and, and see that. Let's let's talk a little bit about research and, and yeah. access again. You say in the book that you know because of the earlier project, you had about ninety minutes of audio tapes, yeah. Yeah. which you could then transcribe. Yeah. So you had that, but you've—I mean—you're not related to this guy. I mean, uh, you, you are not family, uh, and suddenly you've got all of this personal yeah. documentation, government documentation, yeah. that kind of stuff. How did you go about accessing the material you needed? Great question. I, you know, when I started out, I wasn't sure how I was going to do this. Um, firstly, he had distant family and uh, they were happy to let me during COVID sort of, you know, photograph inside the shop, obviously, because it's now empty. He's, di- he's died. So the place is empty. The, this huge building right. is basically empty. So they were very happy for me to wander around the shop and his home and take photographs. When, I, when I'd been talking to him in the past, he'd kind of got sort of envelopes out of his drawers and show me one or two pictures of his national service so i knew some things about him so that was the first source of material you know photographs i could create for myself or photographs that i discovered in his home or his flat including some wonderful kodachrome slides from 1961 which i had digitized and cleaned up so that's one source second source was that i basically found the genealogist you know, who's really good at researching, you know, the history of family trees, if you like, because if you know how to do that, it's amazing what's possible now. It's not something I've done in my life, so it's not a skill I have, but he was able to kind of, you know, document the family tree and go all the way back to his grandparents who came from, this makes it so poignant, who, who fled Ukraine, which was then part of Russia. They were Jewish. They were escaping the kind of anti-Semitic pogroms in what was then Russia and came to London's East End as refugees in 1902, which of course is incredibly poignant given what's happening right now. Um, So he managed to trace the family all the way back to that with sort of government forms that you can now get online. Uh, So that was the second source. The third source was as I interviewed all these people, they'd often say, oh, I've got a photograph you might like to see, Jim, or I've still got some dress patterns from 1985. Do you want that? And so I said to everyone, I'm collecting objects. If you've got anything you think I'm interested in, let me have it. So so if you like, I started to collect, you know, objects, including I found the daughter of his first girlfriend from the 1960s, who is now a wedding photographer thing, living in the state. Uh, and she still had lots of photographs, you know, of her mum with Maurice, and she would be there as well. Uh, so those came actually all the way from the States. So that was the third source. And the last source, and probably the, the luckiest break I had in piecing this together, is, is I found 
in Morris's shop his really old phone direct, his phone book. Really old. You know, most of the phone yep. numbers were dead, you know, disconnected years ago. But out of that, you know, a dozen or so really helpful conversations, you know, opened up that and they were all so excited this was being done for Morris because obviously they, they were in the book because they knew him. So they there was a relationship there. So they also shared all their stories and you know, ended up with 140 pages of in, of interview transcripts. So, you know, masses and masses of data uh, over the 18 months. The challenge then again, working with a really good exhibition curator was how do you take all that, you know, rich material and distill it down to something that is, you know, that is, that is possible for a viewer to kind of, you know, engage with and not get bored to tears by. So that's, so that's, that's where the material all came from. So when when you're putting this together, I mean, forget the exhibition for a second, when you're putting the book together, did you find a tension between text and image just just in your own creativity or was it always a compliment? Uh, So the text is always a compliment. So, you know, I am first and foremost a visual storyteller. You know, I want to tell, I want to tell stories and say something with images first and foremost. I've, I've learned with experience that narrative with the images can make a huge difference. It could just be a simple caption that could be thought-provoking, uh, or it could be, you know, a few lines, or it could be a page of text in a book next to an image. So I, I've learned that text really help with really helps. I don't find it easy writing, I'll be honest with you. It's it's a hard work. I'm I'm in awe of journalists who can go in to a, you know, take my cafe. A journalist can go in there, interview three people turn it around into a piece of copy for a newspaper or a radio broadcast, you know, within 10 minutes. I can't do that. I just physically haven't got that skill set. You know, I'll, I'll sweat, you know, blood, you know, taking my, my iPhone recording and trying to, it's, it's just not, it's not a natural skill for me, but I have to do it. But, but I, you know, I am a visual storyteller, but I, I know that for many people, not, not all, by the way, where I learned this was when I did the Windrush story, which was a story about the Caribbean community in South London to celebrate the 70th anniversary. You know, I I'd, I basically interviewed a number of these uh, these uh, first-generation migrants, amazing stories when they came over in the kind of 50s and 60s. And I included in the exhibition just some printouts, you know, of these stories. So if you wanted to sit down and read, you know, just, just stapled transcripts, you could. And I was completely gobsmacked by how many people sat down, wanted to find all 12 and might sit there for two or three hours reading them all. Amazing. Not everyone, by the way, not at all everyone, but there was a good group wanted. So when I republished the second edition of the book, I put all the interviews in there because I realized that actually for some people, they really want to get more than just see the images. And so I always advise people, you know, ask yourself, you know, how can text you know really help tell the story but in a in a clever way rather than bore people with too much text because that's again you know a temptation you can overwhelm with text you know this whole notion of storytelling and especially for those of us that work with series with with collections of of images is is really i think very closely allied to uh, text storytellers fiction writers essayists the rest of it and we even use a lot of the same language composition pacing that kind of stuff do you going back to just the images now it do you have a style that you would say this is how you can recognize my work 
Um, that's, I wish the answer to that question was yes, because I always pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> because I hate it. So, you know, ultimately, you know, you, you, you should develop a way of, you know, creating imagery that's got some consistency. And so when someone looks at it, they'll say, yeah, that, that, that's the sort of images I expect, you know, to see when I see Jim's work. And what's interesting is this, so usually the answer to that question is yes. You know, I'm shooting reportage, candid, fleeting moments. You know, I'm not worried about pin sharpness. I'm worried about does the image convey something? Does it crystallize some emotion? Does it say something profound and emotive? That's, that's guiding my selection of, you know, when I click the camera, if you like, click the button. And so that's my usual style. As, and, and you would have seen that in some of the work that you've looked at on the website. But also, you know, I like to try different things. The other thing about photography, you can try things. So, you know, the, the tales from, you know, COVID tales from Tom's Bench is more of a kind of portraiture, you know, project where I've tried to, in, in, in the, the, the bench is, is in the frame in the same way. So you get that consistency and all that changes is, is the light, depending on how the day was. You know, is the grass green because it had rained yesterday or not? You know, are the flowers and the little the little vase behind the bench are they alive or dead because they get replaced each week? So that's a portrait project. On this project for Maurice Dorfman, I've tried something new, which is I've I've done still life. You know, I've basically composed little still life compositions that might have five photos, you know, on the back cloth of one of the fabrics that Maurice chose to sell in the shop. So if you like, Maurice is in the exhibition. He's almost curated it because all of the back cloths on which I've photographed these still lives are fabrics I've taken from his shop that he chose to sell to people here in Clapham. Uh, but they're still lives. Different style of photography completely. I, 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 at one level... You know, I, I, when I'm doing reportage, documentary work, candid, yeah, my style is very familiar and recognizable as Jim. People often say, oh, I've seen your work, Jim, because they now know what it looks like. But the nice thing about photography is you can try things. It could be digital. If you're not printing in a dark room, you can try things so easily and see if it works at almost no cost. The only cost is your time. And that's one of the magic of photography. Yeah, <laughs> uh, You know, Jim, looking at your work, going back to something you said at the very beginning, you know, you are a documentary photographer of your community. Yeah. And whether it's the bench or whether it's the patrons of yeah. the cafe or whether it's Dorfman, you have a real empathy and a real love for the people that are your neighbors. Um, and so I, I do think there is uh, a recognizable attitude, if, yeah. if not a recognizable uh, look to the work. Um what, one last question. You are also a teacher. You teach for the Leica yeah. Academy. To tell me about your teaching world. To tell me, you know, what what you're getting from that and what you're hoping to give. So, um, uh, I teach. Uh, quite, I think Leica find me quite interesting, actually. Um, so, I started when in the heart of COVID, like many of these academies, they were trying to find material to share through Zoom, if you like. And so, I did a, a sort of. Uh, a teaching about, you know, finding beauty in the ordinary, you know, kind of, you know, very often little things, little objects, you know, can be made absolutely beautiful if you photograph them, you know, sensitively and thoughtfully. And the ordinary objects can be things of beauty. So I did one, I did that, and that went, went very well. Then I basically decided to, I, I also collect photography. I collect, you know, sort of particularly documentary photography from the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s. And I decided to do a course 
for the Life Academy about, you know, how you could learn uh, from the masters of photography, you know, Kurtesh, Kudelka, you know, Chris Killip, you know, the, all the sort of genre of, of amazing photographers did that. And, but then, uh, then I got into this whole, uh, documentary photography workshop, which is fantastic. It's, it's, it's worked so well. It's, it's because basically what it does, um, it first of all gives people a, a gra- it's basically for anyone who wants to kind of try their hand at being a documentary photographer. And so I've, I've accrued some, a little bit of theory you know about what documentary photography is all about but i've also accrued you know kind of 20 odd you know photo essays that i admire and we look at those and say why do these work you know why why is this photographer you know actually got this to work whether it be the edit the sequence as part of it also the participants also have to create their own photo essay as part of the five-week course, which gets them out shooting, you know, work and thinking about how to tell a story. And then the, the most, one of the most illuminating things about this thing about, you know, most of us need to work with an editor or creator. So, so the brief they're given is, okay, I want you to now, you're going you're gonna to create an 18-image sequenced photo story. You know, it can be of anything you want. You decide what you want to tell a story about. Your choice can be anything. We've had people talk about, you know, a horse vet, you know, there's a place in South of France, you know, I location, a community. We've had all sorts of stories being told. It doesn't matter what it is. But I also then say to them after, so, and then we look at, all of us look together at, uh, you know, the, the course is usually four to eight participants. So we'll see either four or eight different, very different photo essays each has created. And we'll all, you know, share our thoughts and say why we love them or what they could do to make them even better then i say to them okay i want you to take your 18 images and i want you to give me your also 18 rejects that didn't quite make the cut okay so you're gonna give me 36 images and i'm now going to give those 36 images to one of your colleagues on the same workshop and their job is to edit from that 36 and sequence if you like what they would use to tell the story you want to tell and I've now done this with uh, three courses, uh, and in every case, every course, every every individual, the person who is the, if you like, the editor, ends up creating a better edit in terms of images used and sequence than the photographer he or she had created for themselves. And it's a fantastic example. They all, they all, they all get this big aha moment. Okay, I need to have someone to work with me because we've just demonstrated in spades that you will always get a better result if you work with someone else who can be objective, who can be a kind of positive critic of your work. And it, they just they they all say, okay, I get it. This because I say to them, um, if you're a documentary photographer, there are two skills you require. One is, of course, to take images, create images that together, you know, work and can tell a story. But the second skill is to edit, typically from a huge number of images down to a final tight edit and sequence it in a way that holds the attention of the viewer from the very beginning to the very end. Whether it's a book, an exhibition, an online slide, doesn't matter what it is, you've got to hold the attention of that viewer all the way to the end. And that's never easy. And when you do that for somebody else, of course, you're also forwarding your own skills to do that about your own work. So oh. you get better and better yeah. as you help others uh, right. as well. Absolutely right. 
Jim, we are running out of time here. This has been fantastic. I I am, and I got to tell everybody, The Life of Maurice Dorfman, you got to go see this book. Um, If you're in London, go see the exhibition. It is, like I said, it's much more than a photo book. It is a biography with images of all sorts. And go look at the rest of Jim's work. This is social documentary at the very highest level. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. uh, And thank you for having me on your show. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.